You are listening to an American Theater podcast. American Theater is a publication of Theater Communications Group. www.americantheater.org. Hi, this is Deep Tran, senior editor of American Theater Magazine, and I'm your token theater friend.、Uh, Jose's not here to record this intro with me today, but he sends all of you his love. We know this episode is up late, and let's just say this interview was a year in the making. We didn't want to post the episode until we had it in our hands. And now we do. So this week we're talking to the amazing, the fabulously fashionable, the, currently the most important person in the American theater, Jeremy O'Harris, who you may follow on Instagram or Twitter. You know he is a model for a little. Company called Gucci, and he's also the playwright of Slave Play, currently running on Broadway, a black exhibition at the Bushwick Star in Brooklyn, which is running until early December, and his play Daddy is going to be up at the Imelda Theater in London in the spring of 2020, as well as a new play at Playwrights Horizons. So he's doing all the things, and he found some time out of his very busy schedule to. Sit down with your token theater friends, and so we decided to just. So we just, we decided we just wanted to talk to him about all the things, which is what we did. And so this episode is that interview. There's going to be no reviews or rants, but there will be plenty of that in the next episode. For now, for now, here is our interview with the incomparable Jeremy O'Harris. We are here celebrating the anniversary of when we first wanted Jeremy on our show. Are you serious? <laughs> <Yeah> . It's like you blew up. Like I don't even know.、Really、you know what's, what's like the most? Can you can you pick like the most exciting thing that's happened to you in this crazy year? I feel like it's so Me, crazy.、Rihanna. I think Rihanna. I love that you just said it for me because I think that probably is the biggest thing. But I would also say like. There was a. I, this is just crazy, and I can say it because hopefully by the time this comes out, a real one will happen. But I was at SNL the other day, and I found out they cut a slave play joke. But like just finding out that there was like the, the writers of slave play of the writers of SNL like were thinking about slave play, and we're like, we have a good joke,、um, <laughs> and it almost made it to air. Makes me so excited because I yeah I love those guys, and the fact like half the cast has seen the play, like that was really crazy to have like like you know. Kyle Mooney and Kate McKinnon like say like oh my god like you wrote Slave Play I was like wait what you, <laughs> you like, saw Slave Play <laughs> saw Slave Play、um, I think that's been really wild I think being able to、uh, like I don't know have get messages every single day from like kids. That are like in drama schools actively saying like, "Oh my God, you're my favorite playwright." With the same energy that I would email like Robert O'Hara is it's wild, and it's also overwhelming because I'm just like, first of all, like, how did Robert ever respond to any of my emails? Because like I get so many every day, and I'm so bad at responding to them. <laughs> and I think maybe because like the frequency has changed. Like I, back 
when I was emailing him, there wasn't Instagram or Twitter. So there wasn't like this constant onslaught of like different mediums and people. I mean, not to mention Facebook, which I've just given up on. Like I have like so many friend requests. I'm like, you, I'm not going to add any of friends because <laughs> I'm done with this platform. <laughs> but, but it's like overwhelming. I love that you're like single handedly bringing back the time in American culture when Gore Vidal and James Baldwin and all these great thinkers were on TV. Because we don't usually get to hear from playwrights and writers. It's always just like reality TV people and like, you know, musicians and people people see on stage. And was this ever part of like your Jeremy mission? <laughs> I think that, I mean, I do have this sort of like, uh, <laughs> like not to like invoke 45, but I do have this sense of like, let's make like playwrights great again. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, but, like, I just think, I mean, it was so exciting to see that, like, Lin-Manuel was able to, like, so deeply enter the cultural zeitgeist and the cultural imagination. But it also was, like, frustrating as someone who's always been a straight play person to have, like, another musical theater person, like, enter the mainstream or even have, like, a musical into the mainstream like it did um, and realize that, like, plays just never get that opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like, every now and then there'll be, like, um, a play like... Uh, August Osage County, but even that's like rarefied, right? Like it's still mm-hmm. like like you know like August Osage County will never draw the same sort of like fervor as a film that like Hamilton will if that ever becomes a film. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They both still become rarefied, and I'm like, how can theater stop being rarefied? Like Moliere wasn't rarefied, mm-hmm. Tennessee Williams wasn't rarefied. Like you know what I mean? Like we talk to people all the time that didn't just grow up in New York who like knew about Tennessee Williams back in the day. So I'm just like, I would love to see that like my peers and like. Uh, like people I find just so exciting but just work in straight plays get the sort of recognition that like someone like Elizabeth Merriweather only gets doing the new girl um, I want to see them get that from just writing plays because I don't know that I want to like make my name as someone who's um, who did write plays and now writes amazing TV shows even though that's a totally legitimate and totally exciting like way to make a living and way to be exist in the world I just think that for me I'm really excited about like the age when playwrights could just like write plays and you know them Mm -hmm. as playwrights and then the work they do in film and television becomes like supplementary to the work there but I think that the economy for playwrights to have that lifestyle is so fraught that it's almost impossible so one of my goals early on was like how can I try to make a life in the theater possible um and like fruitful for me so that theater can be my prime the primary source that everyone knows me as a maker in that world um and then find income sources from other spaces that aren't theater mm-hmm. or, and that aren't um theater tv or film like mm-hmm. so that like the my primary source of uh of like work and energy is going towards the theater but i can make money other places yeah my sister's a lawyer, and then earlier this, this year she asked me, "Oh, are you? Do you, are you going to take us to safe slave play? Can you take me to slave play?" And I'm like, "How did you hear about slave play?" And then, and then I said, and then she said, "I follow Jeremy O'Harris on Instagram." Oh my god! <laughs> and so was that always? I feel like a good amount of people who know slave play know you first as like an Instagram model and influencer. And so was that part of your long game to kind of build your brand among, among like a group of people who don't normally go to the theater? I mean, the thing for me was that like social media had not been utilized. I mean, again, not to keep like harking back on Lynn's influence, but Lynn used social media in ways that are unprecedented and no one ever talks about that um, for our space. Right. Like, his, like, hashtag ham for ham series was literally just, like, 
Instagram influencing, right? Like, yes. you, like, created events in a digital landscape that, like, reverberated out and made people say, like, I have to go see um, this play, and I also need to go to this, like, weird live event every Wednesday where I can get a free ticket and maybe see Lin-Manuel and Jonathan Groff, like, do something together. So I was always just like, that obviously works. And so despite what everyone thinks about how you sell tickets to the theater, what if we, like, for forwent all of those methods and went to spaces that, like, aren't served by the theater so they can also have this excitement? Um, because it, like, w- whether it'll make the, like, actual demographics change in, like, monumental things, I see it as, like, at least the start of putting a pebble down that can maybe dam up the river of, like, um, only, like, white, wealthy, older people coming to the theater. Um, because for me, it's not about, like, stopping those people from going to the theater or, like, kicking them out of the theater. Actually, I just think theater's more exciting when, like, those people have to sit right next to, like, my friends. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And my friends generally don't go to places where it's just those people. So I was like, how can we, like, change this up? So my little pebbles and it was like, let me do social media. Um, let me let me engage all my friends who have huge social media followings. I have a lot of friends with, like, big social media followings. And be like, hey, will you guys just, like, tweet about my play. I've never asked you to tweet or Instagram or anything about something. And I know it's really stupid and you have your own shit to promote, but like just for me and they did it. And like, I got found a lot of new people found me through that. And then the exciting thing was that like early on fashion and I, we had this, like I had this connection with these fashion people and, like, I think it, like, you know, I've, one of the privileges that I have is that, like, my body, like, has a certain, um, I'm, I'm a certain type that, like, makes it very easy for me to fit into a lot of different clothes. And I totally recognize that. Um, and, like, I, but I was, like, you know, if me wearing, like, a Pierre Moss outfit in this, like, fashion spread, like, sells more tickets to my black queer play about, it was called Slave Play. And like, and I can also do an interview with that same fashion spread and mention that Strange Loop is my favorite musical or that um, Jackie Slippers Jewelry is someone that everyone needs to know or Alicia Harris is everything. Then maybe it'll also reverberate into their spaces as well and help like theater writ large and not just me, you know? Um, and it's like, because for me, I'm like, how can I use my privilege to like uplift everyone inside of the space, which has been really... And I also think that fashion... Fashion has so many. Fashion is a much more welcoming place than people know. I mean, it's also really off-putting and like in the same way that theater is, though, right? Like theater has theater uh, has its limitations on who huh. it can represent and how it represents. Yeah. And like we're constantly battling that and figuring it out and like doing things. But like inside of that tokenism starts to happen, even in the theater and even inside of fashion. And I, um, so like for me, I was I was always like, how can I not look at fashion as something that's like um adversarial to like my sensibilities as an intellect, but actually something that like like, it's very much in conversation with us, and it's tried to be in conversation with us since Anna Wintour took over the Tonys. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, like, theater still has had, like, this weird sort of, like, get away from us. Clothes? Who knows anything about that? And, like, <laughs> we literally have costume design. It's, like, a main feature of our making. Of our making. Like, why would we, like, be rejecting things that are not only some of the best theater I see, which which are fashion shows, but also some of the best design I see. Like, we can learn just as much from them as they can learn from us. And if we can start collaborating with them, maybe more playwrights will start entering into that field, in that, into that intersection. And we'll have something where, like, one day, you know, we'll see Rachel Chafkin directing a uh, Mark Jacobs show or something. You know what I mean? Imagine. Which would be major. I mean, Bob Mackie just won a Tony, so we're kind of maybe there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. A little bit late, but we're kind of there already. Uh, one of the things that I've always loved about your work is how seeing it live, obviously, is so exciting. But then I was reading Slate Play recently, and it's 
I mean, and I apologize deep for bringing up musicals, but man, it's like it, the melody. It's it's a musical that's already there. I was like even like making up melodies. I was I was reading about you know all the characters, and obviously, if you were to imagine a slave play musical, that wouldn't be a Rihanna jukebox musical. <laughs> Although, love the way you lie, perfect for Kenosha. Right? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. What would that be like? Have you even imagined that? And well, I don't know that I've imagined slave play as a musical, but I do think that my brain. So, like, I did poetry in college, mm-hmm. and I and I was a huge fan of poets, and I think. In, like, I think that, like, you know, one of the things that's, like, kind of um, interesting is that even, I think it's, like, sort of, like, a black queer thing, too. Like, my best quips are, like, sometimes, like, uh, like a bit of a rhyme, you know what I mean? And, like, that happens inside of, like, a lot of the big monologues of my plays, which is why they're written sort of poetically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm really gearing up for the moment when I get to finally work on a musical. Um, because it's just, like, the problem with musicals is they take so much time. And, and like, I can... For me, it's like if I think about a play for three years, I can write it in like a day, like basically. Like I can write, I can write really fast because it just comes out of me really mm-hmm. fast. But when I, um, but with musicals, it's like you know, there's so many other collaborators. Like I don't know how to score, I don't know how to do those other things. I know what I like in music, um, and setting lyrics to score is also really hard because I took a class with Marsha Norman and I had to learn how to do that, and I was like, ugh. Um, <laughs> But yeah, there's some there's some things I really want to do, and I I think that musicals are the best form of experimental theater that like make it to the popu- to the populace. And so I'm always really interested in like how can I do something where I can actually let my bonkers brain like open up and like also invite a lot of people in. You know, because I think in a stage play when something is as crazy as an Adrian Kennedy play, um, you're like I don't know what to do with that. But mm-hmm. when like that same sort of like. Um, experimentation and internal like processing happens um, inside of a musical you get something like Strange Loop right where it's like that's essentially Funny House of a Negro but like inside of a black queer male body and set to music you know Um, so I'm excited about that so I have this weird musical I'm like dreaming up Um, do you know the Lazor Brothers um, they wrote a musical called We Live in Cairo. Yeah, oh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. So we were on a residency together, and I told them this musical I had dreamed up that's based on this cookbook I really like. And they were like, oh, my God, like, we should do it. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. So, like, that might be something I do at some point. I also would love to write, to do, there's a, I tweeted, and I'm, like, been so serious about this. I was like, if The Atlantic buys the rights to, um, uh, God, was um, Drop Dead Gorgeous. I would I would write the book to that in five seconds. Can we be in it? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I want to go to that opening night party. Yes. Oh my God. That and Best in Show, I think, are the two movies I would do as musicals. So it would be great, right? I'm skeptical of movies to musicals. Oh, I am but... too. But I think that like the thing that always fucks them up is that they don't depart enough. You know, mm-hmm. the reason Hairspray actually works is because it actually is a departure from a movie. Like, it, it departs yeah. from, like, the abject inside of the movie and, like, moves inside of, like, this one aspect of the film that I think is really exciting, which is, like, the interraciality. And, yeah, like, yeah. The sort of, and I'm like, that's why that one worked. It's because, like, they were like, let's focus on this. And a lot of them were like, don't choose a focus. They sort of were like, well, that's the movie. Let's make it a musical. And I'm like... Yeah, it's like the no, best lines and put it on yeah, stage. Yeah. yeah, whereas with Drop Dead Gorgeous, it's like, no, like, let's really, like dig into the Kristen Dun- the Kirsten Dunst character and like what it means to be like the like the girl who's like is accidentally the best but doesn't know mm-hmm. what that means, you know, or some other, you know, 
that's what I'm really interested in. Yeah. And for Best in Show, I think Audra McDonald was born to play a Jennifer Coolidge character. Yeah, oh my god! Oh my god! I feel like people don't know that Audra's funny. She's hilarious. She, she's yeah. so funny. Yeah, she's amazing. So right now, let me see if I have all your projects uh, in order. You have Slay Play on Broadway. Daddy's opening in London soon. Mm-hmm. You have Black Exhibition at Bushwick Star. And you're working on a play for Playwrights Horizons also. Yes. What have you learned? You, you know, like you're in so many different spaces where many people think that these audiences have nothing in common. And then you're showing them, well, I'm here, bitches. Yeah. And what have you learned about each of these audiences that's, you know, part of uh, something that you want to share with, with us? Like, how are they different? How are they similar? Well, I mean, I think that this is something I tell... So it's been really fun to work on Black Exhibition because um, I'm working with uh, mainly actors who've never acted before, which has been really great. So, um, And that was a, 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 a specific goal of me and Michelle when we were working on the play. I was like... Um, I was like, it's. I think it would be better to craft a space where, like, um, if I'm talking about black queer inter- interiority and, like, who isn't seen, it doesn't work if I use, like, all these, like, black queer actors that everyone knows. You know what I mean? It actually works better if you work with people who, like, I met on Fire Island and who, like, have been a part of, like, spaces that, like, don't intersect with the theater very often because, like, those are the people who are actually erased from these narratives. You know what I mean? Like, Billy, Billy Porter is in the middle of our narrative. So, like, we have a context for that. But, like, people who are... So, the like, people who are actually on the outer edges of our space actually can represent the abject feeling of being black and queer that, and, and unseen um, that I think is, like, a part of the play, you know? And so, um, the thing that's been really interesting is that, like, there are so many nights where they do the thing. That, and even this happens with, like, actors in Slave Play, too, where, like, they go out they go out, and they're like, oh, my God, there were so many, like, straight people in the audience. There were so many white people in the audience. And, like, it was such a bad audience. Like, they didn't get it. They didn't laugh. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We can't dictate what their what their what their understanding of this play is we can't we don't know that it's like we it's like also like the reason our 10 o'clock shows are so much more fun than our eight o'clock shows is that like people at eight o'clock are like they haven't had a drink yet they like just got off work they're like just had a bad commute to our thing and so they're like sitting there and then like they get hit with like anuses and they're like wait what where am i you know what i mean so they might take a second to laugh or they might not understand it and i think the thing i've learned the most is that like I don't know what any audience is going to think, no matter what their demographic layout is. All I know is that what's been most exciting is seeing the audience as mixed as possible. Because when the audience is mixed, it's something that Brandon said about um, about doing um, Neighbors at... Um, at public, in the theater. public yeah. was that like he said there was something about like the back and forth between um, and Brand, this is Brandon Jacob Jenkins but he said there was something about the back and forth between like a white audience and a black audience when it was a 50-50 split that like totally articulated what the play was in a way that like um, it didn't sing that way when it was an all white audience right and I think there's something really interesting about seeing Slave play on night or, like seeing Slave play on a night that was 804 black people like well, it's, well, not eight hundred four because, like, I think like five white people snuck in, um, but like, but like, um, um, some of them were brought by white people. I mean, by black people, so I don't know. Um, but uh, but like, seeing the night when like eight hundred four black people were like laughing, like hysterically, and like taking over that space was so wild in comparison to the way it works for like eight hundred white people. It feels like are in the space, and they're like not laughing at certain things, or laughing at like really crazy, or or laughing really. Hard hard at things I'm like that's not even my favorite joke you know what I mean like you know what I mean but like and then it gets even crazier when it's like a half and half audience in the orchestra especially when like 
older black women of a certain age are laughing at like something in like scene one and everyone around them is like, wait, they are having an uproarious moment right now? Like, how? You know? It becomes this really funny thing seeing like um, the difference in generations, the difference in races, the difference in identities. Like, it's, it's, it makes the play, it makes the, uh, it makes every play I do um, uh, of Gemini. Every play I do gets to be a Gemini because you see two things at once. You can see the, what's the play on stage and the play in the audience. And that's true of every play, but I think in some plays, um, it's more true the play in the audience um, is happening than the play on stage. And in other plays, it's very true the play on stage is happening much more than the play in the audience. And what's been nice is that in both of my theater experiences so far, and all of my theater experiences so far, I've seen two plays happening at once. Mm-hmm. So uh, speaking of anuses, so <laughs> yeah, you know, I saw a black exhibition on Friday, and you're and you're practically nude in it. And I feel like whenever people talk about Jeremy O'Hara, they always talk about, oh, he's just so big and out there. And so, but for you as an artist, was that something you had to like develop, or did it come naturally because you know social media and we have to like put this ourselves on on these platforms all the time. So has like the line between personal Jeremy and public Jeremy, has that blurred? Well, I think that like something that I was always interested in work from Europe and work from the downtown. And all those things were so much more brazen and out there and open than like the work that like we studied in school. So I was always just like, how, like, and, and in school I was so confused. I was like, well, why can't we do August Wilson like this? Like, why does August Wilson always have to be like this? And I, I'll never, there was a scene I did where I played Corey and Fences and I brought in a baseball bat and just like sat in a corner and did most of my lines like hitting the wall with the baseball. And they were like, that's not the scene. And I was like, yeah, but it can be. I was like, if this was like done in Germany, it would maybe be like this. And they were like, what? But you're not in Germany. You're in Chicago. Like, chill. Um, and so I've I've always been like how can how can like plays intersect with the personal the raw the dirty the messy more actively um, and be by Americans specifically by Americans of color because I see that the only plays that we allow to have that license taken with them are plays by Europeans and I'm like mm-hmm. this is so weird that everyone from the New York Times is so excited about like any time like Eva Van Hove or uh, um, Ostermeyer or any of these like geniuses from Europe come over here um, and do the crazy thing. Mm-hmm. But like when we do crazy things, it's sort of like, oh, what are they doing? Experiment. And it's not mm-hmm. just, and that's not even on a color line. That's like just like on just like a like a line across the board of theater makers. And I think it makes our theater makers people who like respect European aesthetics, but like um, have to distill them to this conservatism. And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't want to distill it. Can we just do the raw shit? You know. Yeah. And then not to mention the fact that like with sex and sex. I was always just like something that's been a part of my life so long since like I was a child was pornography like when you when you have the internet from age like 10 on you could see porn whether you want to or not like someone's just like hey like come over to my house and then you go to a house and they google like penis and they're like (laughs) and then you like see that from like 11 to like you're a grown up so I felt like it was so weird that in the theater we like denied that that was a part of it Mm. and with Black Exhibition it was like I really wanted 
I really wanted to reset. Someone had said to me in a sort of deriding way, where like, where I'd been like, yeah, it just sucks because like all I wanted to do was you know work with the Wooster Group and work downtown. And they're like, well, <laughs> good luck with that. If you start uptown, you never get to go to downtown. He was like, it doesn't work that way. You can start downtown and end up uptown, but you don't start uptown and end up downtown. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Annie Dorson did, and everyone was like, well, Annie was different. And I was like, well, I don't know. And I was like, and I was like, I be, I don't want there to be any rules on like what anyone's trajectory is because that's just limiting you know what I mean mm-hmm. and I also think it's really exciting to um, let people know like um, that as a writer I'm not interested in putting people's bodies on the line because of some like leering um, like uh, some leering or voyeuristic aspect of me it's like these are actually a part of my like dramaturgical psyche and it's I've never asked any performer to do something that I haven't done or wouldn't do inside of a play so like that for me was like another thing that I was like oh I think people need to actually see that like this isn't a thing that I like thrust upon other people I'm not like a sadist I'm like actually a masochist when I write (laughs) like it's like actually like all hurting me (laughs) so it's like um and it's been really great to have people who are like oh I want to sit inside of your masochism Mm -hmm. and like like sort of like uh hungrily say that to me and I wanted to like get like sort of like Tap tip my hat to like these like eight performers who are like on stage every night, bearing their souls and their bodies for me. I'm like, while you're doing that, I'll do this down here, and I'll also get naked in this fashion spread. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm like so glad that you brought that up because I, uh, you know, ever since the first time I saw Slay play, I've been trying to uh, articulate something that your play made me feel, and it reminded me. Uh, this is very earnest and very long, yeah. so apologies. No, please. It reminded me of when I was little, and my mom once time did, like, the worst thing that I think a parent can do is that she she read my journal from when I was little, and she read how I was writing about wanting to be Princess Jasmine and the Little Mermaid and all of that, and she was like, well, you know that you can also want to be the male characters, right? And I was like, well, first of all, you read my journal, so we'll have a conversation about it later. But, I, but watching Slave Play, and I felt that I was Kanisha. Because I found so much of myself in her, and it got me to thinking about how your work, very much, I think, like Pedro Almodovar's work, there's a lot of coding that goes when we are, you know, queer men, and we have to hide ourselves uh, during our childhood, and we end up putting a lot of ourselves and seeing a lot of ourselves in female characters that inspire us. And I've always wanted to ask you that, if, you know... Apart from why you write such beautiful the mom and daddy, for instance, I was okay. like, it's like you know, I felt, I felt, I love your uh, female characters more than your male characters. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 yeah, I wanted to ask you that if any of that, you know, like, because we we are in disguise when we are queer when we are growing up, and mm-hmm. how that influenced your incredible female characters. Jose, thank you for saying that because I, so I just saw Pain and Glory as you probably saw on Twitter. I, it, it like, also Pain and Glory felt like black exhibition to me and like I just like loved it so much. I was just like, I felt like I was watching like, um, like an idol make something that was like messy and raw and honest and auto fiction, but like maybe, re- you know, it's like all these things and like he's just a genius. And Amodavar has always been one of my favorite writers and even when me and Danya were working on Daddy, we watched Amodavar like every day in rehearsal. Um to like like at the end of rehearsal we'd go home and like watch another Amodavar film because I was like, I'm working in melodrama, I'm working in these forms, like these are the things that we want to do. And I think that like something that something that was interesting about because I think that one of the things that's been really great about 
the last four years is I think people are having very open conversations that used to happen in private, right? Mm-hmm. Around like who gets to tell what stories and why. And I think it's been really great for people to like start saying certain things openly. But I also think that we've become, we've allowed that discourse to flatten, um, to flatten and not have the three dimensions that like, I think it necessitates. Like it's very, it, it's, it's a flat and like not very not completely true statement to say that like no white person can write a good black character right because like if that's said then we have to throw out Carolina Change and I personally don't want to throw out Carolina Change because that's my favorite musical right and I see Caroline and I know a lot of other people see Caroline as like their aunt their mom their sister their cousin you know what I mean and so Tony obviously channeled something as this young queer boy watching like a black woman who was a housekeeper that he held on deeply and like was able to exercise inside of this play in an honest, complete way um, as a white man. And I think that looking at specifically queer artists, there has been a history of um, of female characters being like surrogates um, for queer men and queer identity and surrogates that like were incredibly well drawn and complicated while also being like in, 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 uh, indebted to a sort of like male maleness and whether that maleness intersected with misogyny or um, uh, uh, heteropatriarchy or all these other things like is besides the point of the fact that like they also like were seen as complete at the time and they're still seen as canonically com- complete because people still want to do them hungrily right like no one's like you know like, we can't do Blanche anymore because she's written by a, a man <laughs> like we hate Blanche Blanche isn't a real character Stella's not a real character Maggie the Cat isn't a real character well and but people are able to say like oh like they were obviously surrogates for his like obvious homosexuality and, like, possible gender, like, dysphoria and all these other things that, like, exist inside of his work in a really um, interesting way. And so, in this last, in the last five years, I feel like we've gotten to a place where, like, a lot of people are like, men can't write women, period. And not everyone's saying that, and obviously if everyone was saying that, like, Slave Play would have actually been canceled and not have happened. But I found that to, that part of the discourse to have, like, erased the queerness of it. And, and the, like, and what it can mean for a queer writer to like see something of themselves inside of a woman or, or to like create a woman who could be a surrogate for himself and like see how that might illuminate not just for him or queer men, but also for women. Um, in the same way that Hanya writing about four gay men in the, a little life saw, made me see something that was so resonant about my queerness, but also <clears throat> she wrote like vicious gay men. Like this type of vicious gay man that a lot of gay men are like, that's not a gay man. And I'm like, well, guys, gay men have done this to women forever. You know what I mean? Gay men have created these like really complicated, <coughs> sort of like hard to look at women that like have both resonated with women and also like completely not, you know? I think that's one of the beauties of being a writer that I'm seeing. Um, one of the beauties of being a writer, one of the beauties of like identification and surrogacy that like, are being erased inside of our discourse right now. And I'm trying to figure out how to both make space for the conversation around like um, who gets to be seen, how their work gets to be seen, but also, and who who gets to make the work while also um, articulating like the necessity for a complex thought around these things. Mm-hmm. It's like, I think, I think that people sometimes forget that even Wonder Woman was written by a man who didn't know where to channel his S&M yes. you know, desire. And Wonder Woman's no like victim. She, She's Wonder Freaking Women, right? Yes, so yes. I think of Kanisha as a Wonder Woman also. And I love her yeah. for that. Thank you. 
you, I feel like you were almost canceled for slave play around this time last year because this is my theory about it, which is like we had this conversation where sex is odd, and then when you ever, whenever you add sex to something, it get, it feels fraught and it channels something primal within the audience as they're watching it, and so because I feel like the conversation around slave play with regards to the sex part of it is it's just titillating mm-hmm. and it's besides what the characters are talking about when it mm-hmm. comes to race where but I feel like what you're talking about is like how like how race relations manifest itself within people's actual sexual dynamics in the bedroom mm-hmm. and so do you feel like in talking in talking about slave play and your work people kind of flatten all of those discussions I think they do and I think it's been, it was one of the reasons why like in Getting interviewed by Tanya Pinkett was so great. Tanya Pinkett was like, "Let's talk about the sex." You know, it was just like so amazing. So like, finally, someone is because like the sex was so not talked about, even in the praise of the play, that it felt like this weird like diverge. Because I think for me, with the one of the reasons sex is at the core of the play is that I feel like when where I've seen people be the most honest about their desires, their positionality, their, like, understanding of themselves is sexually, right? You'll, you'll hear people say things when you're having sex with them, you're like, where the fuck did that come from? <laughs> and But we, but also, in, in the world, we've been like, no, you can allow anything in sex. Like, that's where the part of it is. And so it's like... We gotta ha- separate those two things. Yes. But I'm like, what happens when someone... I'm like, it's like, for me, it was like, that's the most ripe place to have dramatic conflict is around sex and sexuality because we have these two discourses. One is that sex reveals something about you and the other discourse is that sex doesn't reveal something about you. It's separate and those are two separate things. And what happens when you put those that, that argument in front of you and what can you elicit? What does what that argument become a metaphor for given whatever ingredients are in it, right? Like, this play could have also been done about just, like, straight a straight couple and wherein the woman is like, I walk around every day with this fear of being... I don't know if we want to ruin it for people. If you haven't seen the play, don't listen to this part. But... Basically, um, like this could be the same play if if it was like a like a like a white woman and a white man sitting in a room, or a black woman and a black man sitting in a room, or an Asian woman and an Asian man sitting in one room, and the woman is like, I walk around every day with the fear that I could be sexually assaulted, and I want to own that fear, and I want you to like do this thing, and mm-hmm. he's like, I absolutely will not. That is a given. And she's like, but I know you walk around knowing that you can do that. You literally look like Brock, whatever, like the guy, the rapist, Brock from, Turner. Yeah. Brock Turner. You look like Brock Turner. You look like, you know, um, who's the guy? Uh, who's the guy? Brett Kavanaugh? Yeah, you look like, 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 Just like, you look like a rapist, right? Like, so, like, yeah. because you are a man. That is why you look like a rapist. And, like, every man looks like a rapist to me, and I want to own the fact that you look like a rapist. And it's interesting that rapist and racist rhyme. Anyway, um, but, like, I was like, I was like, I was like, that's the, that's the thing that the, the characters are in conflict about. And, like, that I just wanted to like put that in in the play and like but so I put my ingredient was like that plus race because like both of those things are in conversation every time I have sex like there's no way that I have sex with like anyone black white Asian Latino anyone where I'm not thinking about our racial dynamics and like the history of our race and maybe that's my own fucked up thing but I am also from the South and like in the South everything was talked about so racially that it was like it was like uh, suffocating so it's like it's like. Even, even when I was able to breathe, I still remember that that feeling of suffocation. And that feeling of suffocation makes me like have these moments where I'm like, that person's Asian, that person's Jewish, that person's that. And it doesn't really change my understanding of them in any real way, but it does like harken back to being in middle school and knowing that like everyone was like, we're not going to go to Jared Gudinski's um, bar mitzvah because he's a Jew. And I was like, wait, what? Like, 
I didn't even know what bar mitzvah was. And I was like, what? He's a birthday party. We're going to go. And so I was like one of the only people that wanted to go. You know, it was like this, mm-hmm. that's, that, that becomes a part of the discourse. So, okay. I, I don't know that I can say Jared's name. Just be by the same. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're both by his name. Now I really want to see you collaborate with Katrin Brillat. Who? With yeah. Katrin Brillat. Oh, oh yeah. my God. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. I feel this, like you're on the same page with. Oh yeah. my God. That's so crazy. Like, um, Maser, Fat Girl, yeah. is like one of my favorite movies ever. Have you seen Brief Crossing? No. Oof, you're in for a treat. Make okay. some time. It's only 80 I'm, minutes. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch yeah. Brief Crossing. Yeah. It's, oof, uh, it's my favorite. And to end on that, you know, jolly holiday note, it's Thanksgiving month and what, who are some of the artists, the up and coming artists who are you most thankful oh, to God. have? And I'm, so th- with, uh, I'm so thankful exactly. for so many. Well, there's one person who whose play I just found out about last night, and just hearing the title of it made me really excited. But it's a playwright, or not the title, but like the synopsis of it. He's a young playwright, and he's in the New York Theater Workshop um, 2020 Fellowship. And I can't remember his name, but he has a, a, a play coming out, or a play that he's written, called um, American Television. <laughs> and um, so it's like American Visions, but like Tella is within the thing, and it's about like a Latino family, and like I don't I don't know if I can give it, but like it's so it sounds so good, and someone's sending me the script, and I'm like I am so excited that this person is thinking in this way about like the Latinidad in America and like aesthetics and like experimentation, and that like people are like really into a young writer, so I'm really thankful for him. I'm excited for Jordan Jordan e. Cooper, Donnie Love, Michael R. Jackson, Keele Gibson, G- Jeremy O'Brien, J- Jere Breon Holder, Josh Wilder, because I feel like I've grown up with a coterie of queer men in my peer group, and that's, it's so amazing that, like, there was once a time when there was only going to be one every couple of years, and I'm coming up in a year... And in, a se- in two seasons, when multiple of us have, like, debuts, shows up, and are able to go to each other's shows and, like, be excited about each other's shows. And that's amazing. And, like, not to mention the fact that, like, so many of my friends are doing so well right now. And I'm really thankful for them. So, like, Liza Birkenmeyer, like, I'm so excited she got the review she got. Uh, Will Arbery is getting this great love right now. Celine Song's play is coming to New York Theater Workshop, which makes me really happy. Alicia Harris's tour is going crazy. Um... So I'm really excited about all those people. And then Antoinette Nwandu and Lynn Nottage came to see my play the other night. And knowing that Antoinette and I have both shared a director and that she has been such a champion. She sent me an email or a video, a long video of herself um, after seeing Slave play, um, dancing to work and just being like, thank you so much for this. That like, that was one of the first indications that like I wasn't canceled. And I was like, okay, cool. Like this has been amazing. And like, also, Tori Sampson, because the fact of my time at Yale is that besides Jackie Silver's Jewelry, my black female teacher was Tori Sampson. She was a third year when I was a first year, the entire time I was working on Slave Play. And the thing that everyone knew about Tori, and the reason Tori had, is so revered at Yale, is that if Tori doesn't fuck with you, you will not see the light of day. Like, you will be completely buried. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. fact that Tori, like, Always, when she, her big thing with me was slave, was slave. It was like, keep writing. I want to read more. I want to know what's going on next. I want to go know what's going on next. And she held space for that play and like held that play close and saw that play deeply from first draft when it was just 30 pages to final draft means the world to me. And she was my teacher because I know for a fact that if Tori had been like, you're canceled, 
I would have the show the show would not have got to New York period because like I'm not I'm not someone who doesn't take my peers into consideration when I'm working mm-hmm. and I took her deeply in consideration when I was working and that that's that was huge for me so Tori Sampson is someone I'm deeply grateful for I'm grateful to see it conquering the world so go yes. go keep doing it and thank you Jeremy for joining us thank you Thank you all for listening. And if you want free tickets to Slave Play, be sure to follow Jeremy on Twitter because he... I've never seen any, any artist market their plays as well as Jeremy does. Well, except for maybe Lin-Manuel Miranda. But Lin-Manuel Miranda does not have an Instagram where he dresses in fancy pajamas. And remember, if you love Token Theater Friends, be sure to you know, subscribe, tell your friends, leave us a review on the podcast apps that you use and you can see what jeremy wore by checking out token theater friends on youtube thank you all for listening and remember theater is more fun when you take a friend bye